during the Civil War, public opinion in Great Britain was divided as to which side was favored. Is it still that way today? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. On Sound Authors, you can expect the unexpected. Kent Gustafson, Ph.D., author, publisher, professional musician, and now talk radio show host, will not only entertain you, but with new books and guest authors from around the world, will interview talented, independent musicians showcasing their fresh new music. Plan to join Dr. Kent and friends each Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on World Talk Radio Studio A. Sound Authors, where authors sound off. What's it like? What's it like? It's lonely. It's really lonely. I miss my brother. I miss my brother. I'm surrounded by other people, but it's not the same. I've got other people around me, but it's not the same. It's pretty scary, but I don't let it rattle me. It's scary around here, but I don't let it rattle me. You always have to watch your back. There's no one to watch my back. I spend my whole day worried who's out to get me. I'm always wondering who's out to get me. But I can take care of myself. But I can take care of myself. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. It's not like I have a choice. It's not like I have a choice. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. Go to jail for a gun crime and your family serves a sentence with you. Something to think about before committing a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadilocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second. I hope it has a bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org, and from energyhog.org she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy, and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org, or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Robin Ansel, the archivist of the UK American Civil War Roundtable. We talked in our first segment about what brings someone uh, into uh, the study of the Civil War, particularly. Uh, someone who does not live in the United States. And I, it's a topic that, uh, Robin, that interests me in part uh, from the the syndrome of, of not having a dog in the fight. Uh, yeah. Many Americans like myself are descended from people who immigrated here after the Civil War. So I have no ancestors who were in the United States during the Civil War. It's not uncommon to meet Americans who will say, well, I'm interested because, my, especially here in North Carolina, my great-great-grandfather fought in the 26th North Carolina, so of course they're interested. 
and uh, as people have asked me, well, you know, why are you interested when your people weren't here? Um, I'm never impressed by that question, uh, the limited imagination that it shows. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm fully sympathetic to people who are interested in, in a, a war that their own kin weren't involved in. Uh, but but let me pursue that with you. What, I mean, you don't have a dog in the fight. Uh, well, well, does that make a difference? In, yeah, interestingly, I do. I, I'm very interested in family history studies, anyway, and studying my family history. And it's always gone in a way side by side with my passion, or my wife would say, obsession with the American Civil War. But I did um, in 2000 connect the two subjects together, because in fact I discovered that um, even though it was after the Civil War. Um, a great uncle of mine who emigrated in 1907 married into a family in the States, native family, who tracing back through their family history, which is all connected by marriage if not by blood, takes me back to a certain individual called Sergeant Hiram Williams Purcell, who was color sergeant of the 104th Pennsylvania who won the Medal of Honor at Fair Oaks Seven Pines. Mm. So even though I might be over here, I am very proud of uh, my tenuous connection with a veteran of the Civil War. Yeah, very good. It, it, I mean, it is really, uh, uh, I, I suppose, when one starts you know, to, to draw those connections, they can be found in, in, in surprise. Dig deep, deep enough. Yeah, very. Now, in terms of interest in the war, in addition to, to having a... Uh, uh, a relative. Well, I said in the introduction during during the war itself, uh, uh, political views in Europe, uh, in France and Britain particularly, uh, were divided. But to a large extent, uh, the governments of those countries were sympathetic to the Confederacy. Uh, it. You mentioned when the Civil War Roundtable, the American Civil War Roundtable began. It was originally called, uh, uh, was it the Confederate Research? Uh, That's right, Research Club. Confederate Research Club. Yeah. Uh, is there a, a degree of Confederate or Union sympathy among members of, of your organization? Um, I think possibly people tend to express this, even though we are non-partisan, and that's the idea. We study it, you know, neutrally, and. Um, in all aspects, military, naval, civilian, any topic during 1861 to 65 America. Um, I think possibly those who are pro-Southern in their sentiments do tend to express it more volubly than those who are pro-North. I'm not sure if that applies in American uh, roundtables. Um, but um, I think there's probably a, it's a mixed bag, but you do tend to hear more people talking about how much they um, really uh, adore Robert E. Lee or um, have a great respect for the generalship of whoever, Stonewall Jackson, Claiborne. Um, but uh, we, we're a fairly mixed bunch, and uh, we certainly don't break into civil war at our own meetings. What? Only, only verbally, anyhow. Uh. It, it, culturally, the, the, I, you asked, does this happen in the United States? And, of course, people still debate the, the causes and issues of the war, but there's no, um, uh, there's no cultural equivalent of, of tilting your head back and shouting something like, the South will rise again uh, while waving uh, a, a 
Confederate battle flag. Uh, there's no con- equivalent for that for the North, perhaps because having won the war, there's no need to develop one. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't happen within Civil War roundtables. It's more uh, uh, the people that I'm watching drive pickup trucks down 10th Street right now here in Greenville yeah. who would be doing that. Um, the people who study the war, t- hopefully, are, are, are beyond that sort of thing to some extent. But what, what I wanted to pursue here was the idea, you mentioned also movies got people involved in the study of the war. Uh, Gone with the Wind, you named, uh, certainly as a romantic portrayal of the, the Confederacy in the Old South. Yeah, and I'm sure for some of our younger members, the, uh, the Ken Burns epic in 1990 brought in a new generation. Did, would it bring a, them in with the same sort of Confederate romanticism, though? Oh no, probably not. No, but brought them into sorry into membership of the Round Table over here. With a lot, uh, that was another category which I didn't mention in the non-statistically valid survey that I did of our members at our 50th anniversary con- uh, conference. Quite a few did refer to Ken Burns' series as having inspired them to join and to start reading about uh, the subject. It, it seems. Just again, non-statistically valid. That, that the the interest goes in waves. Uh, certainly here in the United States, uh, the 1960s, uh, a lot of interest fading away in the 70s uh, and 80s, coming back uh, in the late 80s with the Ken Burns production and, and rising, and then then perhaps on the downturn right now. Uh, oh, perhaps we're all expecting a, a rise with the um, bicentennial of Lincoln's birth next year and um, the sesquicentennial fairly soon after. Well, that that may be. Um, some people are prepared for that bicentennial by ordering their copies of Did Lincoln Own Slaves by me. <laughs> there, I got that in. Uh, but I yes, did quickly uh, check today, actually, in Mark Neely's wonderful encyclopedia of Abraham Lincoln to see if I could answer that, but uh, I couldn't find the answer in it. Ah, well, so uh, I haven't already got the answer to it, so I'll have to uh, dip in my pocket. Uh, well, you will, uh, Mark was was my predecessor at the Lincoln Museum in. Ah, I thought he perhaps uh, might be a colleague of yours. Yes, uh, I'll be seeing him uh, on Lincoln's birthday in Springfield next month. Uh, he, he'll be speaking. Uh, I'll, we'll both be speaking, but at different events there. And uh, his book, uh, I'm sure listeners know this, but uh, if you if you want a single book with all the answers to all the questions, whether they've been asked or not, uh, Mark's, Mark Neely's Lincoln Encyclopedia, the Abraham Lincoln Encyclopedia, to be formal, is, is a wonderful reference. That, uh, is, it just doesn't answer the title of your book, unfortunately. So we'll still have to buy your book. Well, well you will. I, 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 initially, at one point, I thought of editing uh, the Lincoln Encyclopedia, bringing it up to date. It was published in the 80s. It, a lot has been discovered since then, uh, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, Mark himself has written several books. His ideas have, have advanced since then and changed. And the book is due for an update. And, and I thought about it, but I could not match his knowledge of the subject. Uh, but I thought I could maybe address questions that the people really do ask that are not always ones that uh, seem important. Uh, well, I did notice that Derrickson wasn't in his uh, in his book. Perhaps he hadn't been discovered by then. Precisely, David Derrickson, the, yeah. the the captain who who spent nights with Lincoln at the soldiers' That's home. Right. In, indeed, the soldiers' home uh, is certainly in the book, but it was it had not been uh, developed uh, or re- rediscovered. It was still just lying there as a sort of empty administrative building in Washington. Uh, and since and we, then, I think we've had three books on the 
on the soldier's home with its uh, imminent opening. Exactly. And uh, last week we talked here with uh, Frank Milligan, the director, uh, and and uh, people have a chance to go there now in, in 2008 and 2009 and see the, the place where Lincoln worked. Lincoln wrote a famous letter uh, during the Civil War to the working men of Manchester. He did. I know it well because that's my, my native part of the country, Lancashire. Well, tell me about that. In, in that letter, as I understand it, he is trying to appeal to English workers uh, to continue to support the Union cause uh, and trying to, to, to deflect their their they're thinking away from economic self-interest that the South was counting on. Yeah. In that uh, unemployment from from cotton famine would would cause that's right. The South. Well, the, the Manchester there, there was a division, in fact, between or traditionally it's been um, put forward as a division between Manchester and Liverpool, both within Lancashire, Liverpool on the coast, Manchester inland. Manchester was the main cotton manufacturing town. And there was a cotton famine, as you say. There was lots of um, poverty. Soup kitchens were opened up. And, in fact, family history comes back into it. My great-great-grandfather, by the name of Hamlet Ansel, was working as a fustian cutter, which is an occupation in a cotton mill, at the time of the Civil War, with a young family. And I'm almost certain, though I don't have the evidence, that he would have been going along to the soup kitchens with his family during those very stressful times. And uh, it's amazing that the workforce did gather in the Free Trade Hall in Manchester in late 62 and encouraged Lincoln to stay the course and supported his Emancipation Proclamation uh, provisionally issued. And uh, as you've already said, the reply that Lincoln wrote is a historic and famous document, and I think is one of his classics. The way that he, he mentions that the, he hopes that the, uh, the the bond of friendship between Britain and America will stay the course, uh, despite the trials that everyone was going through. But to go back to the division, yes. Liverpool was very pro-Confederate. They, in fact, had had a Confederate bazaar uh, to raise money for Confederate widows and orphans in the St. George's Hall building, which is a massive public building in the centre of Liverpool. Rather interestingly, that very building today was used to inaugurate, and I think it's happening at this very moment as I'm speaking, Liverpool's position as the European capital of culture for 2008. So you know, the Civil War and its connections still seem to be with us. A lot of the buildings, uh, the fantastic public buildings which were around and used for these mass rallies are still with us today. Now, did Liverpool support the Confederacy? Was that tied in with the, the, the production of ships? For it, it did, yes. Of course, the Alabama, which was uh, built uh, surreptitiously in the Florida uh, under the uh, watchful eye of um, Commander... James Dunwoody Bullock. He uh, had them built um, but fitted out as Confederate warships out in the Azores. Because of the Neutrality uh, Act, Britain couldn't be seen to be building warships for a belligerent nation, so they were shipped out as um, 
uh, in disguise, so to speak. But um, there was an ever-watchful U.S. consul in uh, Liverpool, Thomas Haynes Dudley, who uh, had spies out and about around the dockyards of Liverpool and Birkenhead, Birkenhead being the exact location where the Alabama was built across the river, the River Mersey from Liverpool. And interestingly, the dock, number 10 dock, in Birkenhead is uh, now a listed building thanks to some of our very keen members of our roundtable, particularly uh, a man called Jerry Williams, who has fought long and hard to get the local authorities in that city to recognize the American Civil War heritage of Merseyside. And that dock has got a heritage um, listing on it so that it can't be interfered with, as has number 10 Rumford Place in Liverpool City, which was, in inverted commas, the Confederate Embassy of the North. It's where James Dunwoody Bullock, the Confederate naval agent, had his offices. So you're actually involved in sort of Civil War preservation efforts uh, in, in England as opposed yeah. to battlefield sites in the United States. That's right. States. We raise money to... Um, there's a heritage trail that now takes you round... Liverpool and Birkenhead, a lot of that has been researched by members of the society, the round table. We've also, um, uh, we had uh, Ed Bars over to actually open or unveil the commemorative plaque which established this Civil War trail, which I understand is one of two outside America. The wow. second one, I don't know whether you could guess where it might be. Uh, hmm, no. It's actually in Cherbourg, across the channel. Well, of course, that would make sense. Where the, the um, where the Alabama set out from to the Kearsarge. Yep, 1864. You mentioned Ed Bars, who, uh, by coincidence, uh, I will be seeing later this evening. He's giving a talk oh, right. in Eastern North Carolina. But that shouldn't surprise our listeners because Ed is omnipresent. Well, yes, he came to our 50th anniversary conference. As I was saying earlier, 2003, we celebrated. Um, our 50th anniversary, we had the biggest and best meeting ever of the society. We uh, met up at a, a hotel in the southern outskirts of Birmingham so that more of our members could get to it. And it was a weekend with a very impressive array of speakers, I think particularly for a UK roundtable. Ed Bars was present talking about Vicksburg, we also had Jeb Stewart the Fourth talking about, you'll guess it, the <laughs> illustrious ancestor. Um, we also had Frank O'Reilly talking about Jackson at Chancellorsville, and Jerry Williams, who I just mentioned before in the Merseyside Heritage Trail in connection with the Alabama. He spoke about the work and the connections of um, our membership in Liverpool in getting all the work I'd mentioned before established the trail and the preservation orders. Also another American speaker who perhaps you know, Colonel Joe Whitehorn? Uh, actually, I don't know what I do. Um, but uh, we're going to stop at this moment, take another short break, and we'll come back and talk more about the, uh, uh, the scholarly heritage of the American Civil War uh, as seen from 
uh, English shores with our guest Robin Ansell, the archivist of the UK-American Civil War Roundtable. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. 